You're listening to a reading of the book Disrupting Mercy by Matthew C. Clarke and Annabella Rossini Clarke. The book was published in 2022 and this reading is being distributed as a series of podcasts narrated by the author Matthew Clarke. Footnotes and bracketed references to verses in the Bible have mostly been omitted to make the reading flow more conversational. I assume if you want to study the fine details, you'll read either the printed or the e-book versions, which are available from many online booksellers, including Amazon. Biblical quotes are nearly all taken from the New Revised Standard Version. Chapter 10. Putting Mercy to the Test An initial thought to ponder. Please pause for a few minutes to think about the limits of mercy. Are there people or circumstances outside the reach of mercy? How do you react to the claim by the Reverend George C. Woodruff that, quote, the test of Christianity is not loving Jesus, it's loving Judas? Although I have included numerous stories of mercy in action, Much of the content so far has assumed without question that this conception of mercy applies to any need and to any person. Mercy most readily makes sense for people dear to us and to people who suffer through no fault of their own. The real test of mercy, however, is whether it can apply to more offensive cases. Can this ideal of mercy as a gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion find any traction in the contexts of horrendous wrongs or brazenly reprehensible people? Subheading. Mercy Toward Enemies Dirk Willems was arrested for his Anabaptist beliefs and imprisoned in Asperen, the Netherlands, in 1569. During winter, he escaped from the prison and fled across a moat covered with a sheet of ice. Having reached solid ground, he looked back to see a thief-catcher, who had followed him, but fallen through the ice. Willems turned back to help the man, saving his life by pulling him to safety. However, the voice of a burgomaster floated across the ice, demanding that the thief-catcher continue to do his duty, and so the thief-catcher seized Willems and took him back to the prison. Several months later, Willems was burnt at the stake. Willems' action was a natural consequence of his desire to be like God, whom he knew was merciful even to enemies. Rescuing the thief-catcher was not a choice made in a vacuum, but a habitual ethical stance that reflects a principal component of the Anabaptist mindset. It was a gift that was not repaid, a surprising act of kindness beyond what one could morally require, expressed towards someone in need. Dirk Willems demonstrated the sort of mercy that emerges inevitably from a non-violent, non-coercive and non-vengeful theology. Such concepts arise naturally when Christian ethics are derived from the life of Jesus, who preached that our love, following the pattern of God's love, should be extended even to our enemies. In Luke's account of the words of Jesus, loving enemies is specifically linked to mercy. We are instructed to be merciful, just as God is merciful. Jesus demonstrated that attitude on many occasions, but most famously when, from the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. 
Jesus was not the first to advance goodwill towards one's enemies. Even amidst the violence of the Old Testament, the Israelites were called toward the same ideal. But Jesus moves this ideal in a direction that undermines the very category of enemy, prompting Paul to claim that the cross put to death enmity itself. Love toward enemies is one of the highest forms of mercy. Such love is an extreme kindness that cannot be coerced, deserved, or repaid. It is a surprise that far exceeds what can be morally required or anticipated. Acting nicely towards those we perceive to be our enemies can, of course, be motivated by fear or by a sense of duty, but when fear or duty are the motives, the act cannot really be labelled loving. If our behaviour is to count as loving, it will be motivated by compassion for those people as people, because in our hearts we see them no longer as enemies, but as divine image-bearers just as we are, and as worthy of our respect. To love as God loves is not to love out of fear or duty, but to love out of love. Like James Lawson, who turned aside a racial attack by asking for a handkerchief, Dirk Willems was committed to evoking the potential of all people. As we have seen in the Hebrew word racham, this is the posture of mercy, a posture that mirrors a pregnant mother's love for her unborn child and her hope for the child's future. Willems did not engage with his pursuer based on that man's position as a thief-catcher, but in the belief that there was a shared humanity beyond disputes over religious doctrines. Similarly, Lawson did not engage with his opponent based on his immediate experience of him, but on the basis of a hope that other possibilities existed, beyond racial slurs and spit. Such an attitude is inherently risky. In Lawson's case, it seemed to work. In Willem's case, it seemed to fail. However, we must be careful when using the language of success and failure. We do not know the full or final impact of either action on the people who witnessed them, or on those who heard the stories later. In particular, we do not know the longer-term effect of Willem's mercy on the thief-catcher. Even if we did know the totality of future outcomes, whether those outcomes match the original hope is not determinative of the act of mercy. However much we hope our acts of mercy might have some positive impact, the motive for mercy, if it is to be true mercy, is always compassion rather than outcomes. Neither Lawson nor Willems were governed by the wrong that they saw in front of them, but impelled by compassion and an imagery of infinite possibility. Displaying that posture in a moment of crisis requires deliberate will, training and practice. Subheading, Mercy Toward Really Bad People Idealistic talk about loving one's neighbour and showing mercy to everyone is all well and good, but what about people who have done truly horrendous things? Are we supposed to show mercy to mass murderers, rapists, paedophiles and human traffickers? Surely some unrepentant and brutally evil people do not deserve to be forgiven. Would it not be immoral and another form of evil to let them off the hook? I've never been personally confronted by horrendous evil. I cannot be sure how I would react if I were. Consequently, the observations I make below may be unfounded, but the pragmatism of my approach is based on this. To be prepared to show mercy in the face of such horrors, I will need to have formed a habit through long training in simpler contexts. My first brief comment 
is that I take for granted that our primary concern in cases of horrendous evil will be to care for the victim and prevent further abuse. But showing mercy in that direction is not the focus of this section. In this section, we consider whether and how mercy applies to the offender. A second observation is that there are not many brutally evil people. We all struggle to do our best, but very few people are deliberately bad or hurtful. Despite the provocative scaremongering of mass media, the overwhelming experience of humanity is that we coexist in relative peace. As Gandhi noted, the history of kings and wars and crimes makes it seem otherwise, but such history is merely, quote, a record of every interruption of the even working of the force of love or of the soul, end of quote. Many deeply hurtful actions are committed for reasons of ignorance, frustration, the assimilation of unhealthy cultural values, and fear rather than calculated malevolence. I would never wish to devalue the pain of those who have experienced deliberate cruelty. But let's not use those outliers as an excuse to justify withholding mercy in general. Part of the posture of mercy is to start thinking the best of people to hope for, pray for, and believe in the good intentions of everyone we meet. We can certainly avoid naivety about other people's goodwill and be wary when people seek to take advantage of us. When we interact with an extreme sociopath, a deliberate manipulator, someone violently out of control, or someone pathologically unable to feel empathy, we are like sheep among wolves and so need to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. What wisdom can we derive from viewing mercy as the gift of extreme kindness motivated by compassion? Think of the most morally bankrupt person you can, and let's see how that definition might apply. Mercy starts with compassion, and compassion depends on being able to feel for someone, even if they disgust us. Toward that end, an important contribution of Christian thinking is that all people are made in God's image, and all are redeemable. That is what gives birth to the possibility of showing mercy even to the vilest of people. An important step along the path to compassion is to understand the person's backstory. What has made them so deeply evil? What genetic and biological forces are at work? What abuses have they suffered themselves? What bad choices have they made along the way? Such questions are not asked in order to go soft on their destructive behaviours, but for the pragmatic reason that we are unlikely to change them to enable shalom for either them or their victims if we do not first understand them. This idea of compassion for the worst of human beings returns us to the thought that justice is not about imposing deserved punishment, but about restoring shalom. We start by addressing what can be done to restore shalom to the victims. Part of the work is certainly to stop the abuses so that no one else becomes a victim, and that protective goal will often require the perpetrator to be imprisoned. Another part is assisting victims to deal with their trauma, to ensure they feel safe, to comfort them, listen to them, and in some cases to provide professional counselling. Shalom, however, is something more than care for victims. Since true shalom is a state in which all are whole and flourishing, we must also ask what can be done to restore holistic rightness to the perpetrator. Compassion may be the starting point motivating us to show mercy, but it is insufficient on its own to determine the best form of help. 
mercy might be motivated by compassion, but it is also informed by considerations about what form of action is most likely to address the specific need. The extreme evil we are considering here is a particular type of need. Such behaviours are symptoms of deep brokenness that cry out for help. In the face of such extreme dysfunction, effective help will also be extreme. What will break the cycle of evil begetting evil? How can evil people be confronted with the reality of their own evil in a way that makes them pause, rethink and potentially change? A simple expression of the difference between restorative and retributive justice can be seen in how parents discipline their children. A relatively recent movement in child discipline encourages parents to give their children time in rather than time out. When a child misbehaves, a time-out response removes the child from the situation and isolates them, perhaps sending them to their bedroom or sitting in a chair facing the wall. The intention of a time-out is to punish the child in the hope that they will learn not to repeat the unwanted behaviour. In contrast, during a time-in response, an adult will sit with the child in a safe space, providing emotional coaching so that the child can work through their problem and learn better ways to navigate challenging situations. Mercy is often expressed as a time-in response, holding people within the network of reciprocity rather than expelling them. That practice assumes misbehaviour is not the result of willful waywardness, but a lack of emotional, social or problem-solving skills. Giving time-in is equally applicable to adults whose ability to self-regulate has not matured. In the context of horrendous evil, the extreme kindness of mercy may be time in prison. However, even in prison, mercy continues to hope that they will be reformed, that prison would disrupt them positively. Incarceration protects society from the evil, but can also give the offender time in and a safe space in which to undertake the necessary inner work of reflection, self-understanding, repentance and developing the resolution to improve. In other cases, the extreme kindness might be the so-called tough love approach, where support structures are temporarily taken away so the person must face the natural consequences of their actions. This should not be confused with the manipulative abuse that sometimes perverts the label tough love, there's a clear line between tough love and abuse. On the one side is the removal of protective mechanisms to enable someone to learn from the consequences of their action. On the other side is contempt, shown by verbal and physical abuse, trivialising someone's injuries or fears, and damaging demands that someone behave in ways they are not capable of. Nevertheless, some people need to hit rock bottom before being able to accept real help as distinct from short-term rescue, and the merciful goal will be to accelerate that process. The extreme kindness of appropriate tough love can be given in hope without pre- or post-conditions. Nobody has to earn mercy, and in cases of extreme evil it might be psychologically impossible for the person to even attempt to do so. Part of the disruption for them might be to know that the giver expects nothing back. That undermines any thought of changing their behaviours as part of some transaction. If mercy incurs no debt, then the recipient is more effectively forced to decide whether to change for internal reasons, because they want to, 
rather than to manipulate their way around a debt. Like a child with a Christmas present, the most valuable part of the gift of mercy might be the wrapping. That is, regardless of the shape of the kindness, the disruptive element of mercy might be the simple fact that someone paid attention, listened, cared, saw a person rather than a monster, and treated them with dignity rather than belittling them. The more surprising, the better, because to be effective in such cases, mercy must find some way to shock the person out of the story they have previously told themselves. Subheading. People who perpetrate modern slavery. The abuse, exploitation and coercion of modern slavery provide an extreme context in which to question the reality of mercy. What would mercy look like when expressed to people who perpetrate such horrendous wrong? I argued in Chapter 5 that mercy is not in conflict with justice, but that both are tools to create and maintain shalom. But how can mercy be directed toward the perpetrators of awful abuse without negating justice? I will concentrate on human traffickers, because that's my recent field of research, but the principles extend to perpetrators of other atrocities as well. During the past decade, the anti-slavery movement has understood the importance of listening to people who have been victims of horrendous abuse and exploitation, as well as to survivors of such mistreatment. We have realised it is not sufficient to rescue victims from our position of safe superiority. We have begun to recognise that the experts in modern slavery, the people with concrete knowledge and insight, are those very victims and survivors. We must hear their voices if we are to understand their real needs. Who will sit with the people who have suffered and listen rather than speak? Who will believe the version of the story told by, say, an unwilling prostitute? Who will step aside from their safety, superiority and judgment so they can reaffirm the value of those who have been told they are of no value? Who will show them mercy rather than pity by being present within their loss their suffering, their grief, their bondage. We are still coming to recognise that the traffickers who abuse and exploit are also experts in this field. Who is willing to sit with them and listen? Who will take Jesus' manifesto seriously and seek freedom for them? I am not in any way suggesting that convicted traffickers should be released from prison so they avoid any consequences for their crimes. I am suggesting that even the most appalling criminal needs mercy just like all of us do. As slaves to their own passions and pleasures, they stand in need of liberation from the path that has dehumanised them. They need a better option than whatever led them into becoming an abuser and exploiter in the first place. Whatever their backstory, they need release from the bondage of their past. Otherwise, what is going to prevent them from repeating the same horrors once their prescribed punishment is over. I have no doubt that will be a controversial position. But it is a necessary part of the scandal of mercy. We all need mercy, the best and the worst of us. True mercy is kindness offered without consideration of whether the recipient deserves it or not. Mercy does not mean traffickers are excused or avoid the consequences of their past action, but it does mean they are treated as people made in the image of God, people with value, moral agents who can and should be called to account for their actions, and who might still choose to be better people if given another chance. 
the most merciful thing to do for a trafficker or for other abusive offenders might be to put them in prison. That severe mercy takes them out of normal society to protect their past and potential victims, but also gives the offender time to reconsider the significance of their abusive behaviour. The extreme kindness of mercy, in this case, might confront them with the damage they have done, seeking to disrupt their own life narrative so they can start to have empathy for their victims. Then they could authentically consider how to make restitution for their past wrongs. Given the evidence that many traffickers were previously trafficked themselves, their release from bondage might involve breaking free from abuses they suffered so that they do not feel compelled to pass on their own suffering to others. Repentance and transformation may occur spontaneously as an offender suffers through the shame of arrest and court processes, the deprivation of incarceration and social ostracism after their release. But repentance and transformation are more likely to occur if, instead of the prison experience being constructed as punishment, it was constructed as an opportunity for rehabilitation. If abusive, exploitative, coercive people were given time in, with appropriate adult-grade emotional coaching, they could learn a lot about their own emotional trauma and develop patterns of behaviour that do not result in others' suffering because of their own inadequate moral development. That would be an expression of both justice and mercy. In the area of modern slavery, there are no global statistics about re-offence rates once convicted traffickers are released from prison. We expect those rates to be high because at this stage no one in the world runs rehabilitation programs for such offenders. During their imprisonment, a family member or colleague may continue running the trafficking business and perhaps most go back to the same business after release. Furthermore, there are few programs anywhere in the world aiming to reduce people's vulnerability to becoming traffickers in the first place. Who will sit alongside vulnerable people who are considering making money off the suffering of others and, in mercy, show them a better alternative? Imagine the impact an ex-trafficker could have as an advocate for change. Suppose a convicted trafficker, transformed by a rehabilitation program while in prison, leaves prison with another chance to flourish in ways that do not require the abuse of others. Imagine them returning to their hometown and calling on their peers to forsake their abusive exploitative practices and showing them another way in which all can flourish. In the current global state of modern slavery, the rescue of one victim leads, sadly and almost inevitably, to their replacement by another victim. On the other hand, when one trafficker is transformed into an ex-trafficker, every person who might have become their victim in the future is also saved. That is the same dynamic as the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Rather than rescuing all the people Zacchaeus exploited, Jesus rescues Zacchaeus, the offender, and in doing so, indirectly rescues all Zacchaeus's past and future victims. The example in chapter 7 of a boy given a bike with working brakes, shows the same lesson. Not only was he helped, but giving him a safe bike also protected the surrounding community from future accidents. Mercy not only addresses the need of the immediate recipient, but often has the side effect of saving future victims. Subheading. Something to consider. After reading this chapter, has your thinking about the limits of mercy changed? 
If there are people or actions outside the reach of mercy, is there some other hope for them? This chapter of Disrupting Mercy has been narrated by Matthew C. Clarke. Other chapters are also available from the usual podcast distributors. You can also find them along with more details about the authors at turningteardropsintojoy.com. If you'd like to join a discussion about the book and share your own experiences of mercy, search for the Disrupting Mercy group on Facebook.